This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Word School, I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at WisdomTree. I'm joined by my co-host, who's a senior economist for WisdomTree and also professor of finance at the Wharton School, Jeremy Siegel. We're going to be talking about the economy uh, and the banks today on the show. We're going to have two great guests, but just quick note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. The discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. Uh, professor, we've got some really big uh, reports this week. You've got uh, interest rates moving. you got the jobs report, but a lot of other economic data. How are you looking uh, at all the data coming out this week? Yeah, well, there's a one-two punch uh, for lower rates. Um, first of all, of course, Powell on, on Wednesday uh, uh, expressing a lot of flexibility, almost saying there's two-sided uh, risk, I mean, up and down. Although he did tend to say up was a little, it was a little more uh, likely. And then uh, today's uh, employment report, uh, which which was definitely weak. I mean, I'm not going to call it disastrous. We still had a gain in payrolls, but we did definitely had a revision downward of the previous one, which of course was, you know, eye popping when we had over 300,000. That's that's a revised uh, downward. We also had a drop of one tenth in hours. Um, we also had a tick up of the unemployment rate. Um, uh, you know, you name it. Uh, there was there was there was nothing strong about it. Um, by the way, this this kills, in my opinion, uh, a December hike. Um, you know, and I mean, unless uh, un- unbelievable change around in data. And by the way, I still think that the inflation is going to going to be sticky here. Not that he's going to get such great inflation, but the weakness in the economy is going to trump uh, the, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, concern that inflation may not be going down. So I think we, you know, we have seen the top of of rates. Uh, It's almost like uh, uh, Powell had a glimpse of the labor market report. Now, technically, from what I understand, it really is not available until the night before. Um, uh, but I don't know whether maybe some preliminary details uh, uh, were leaked uh, to Powell, um, uh, you know, for uh, the Wednesday meeting. Uh, we also had a you know slight tick upward in the uh, unemployment claim was nothing dramatic or anything that that you know I would say was worried about. Um, earlier in the week, though, on, uh, we we also had that very softest uh, soft. Uh, ISM report on on manufacturing. Um, now, uh, you know the reaction in the market, uh, at least initially here, uh, has been um, you know big drop in rates, no surprise, but also a popping up in, in equity. And you and I said, my goodness, if slowdown risk, why is there a pop in equity? Well, the interest rate drop here trumps <laughs> in 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 the formula any may drop in earnings that might. Um, uh, come about again. This, you know, I, I do not think there's going to be a recession. I think there's going to be a slowdown. Um, I think the market priced for slowdown. Um, as I said, thought that the, you know, the, the, you know, we were priced for a big slowdown, even a, maybe even a mild recession. So that uh, in this particular case, uh, you know, this 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 slowdown combined with the Powell's flexibility. Um, uh, I think is is giving the market saying okay now the discount rate is down. I, th- I think I saw the the ten uh, uh, year tips uh, you know all the way down to two point one. Um, you know had, had shot above two and a half um, uh, here. So this is a big big move. I mean this is a, a mind changing move <laughs> in terms of uh, uh, you know peaking uh, on the bond market. I will say uh, that uh, you know. Um, uh, Powell's statement, we're not even talking about dropping rates. I think um, the next meeting, they will be talking about it. I'm not saying they're going to do anything about it right away. I'm not saying all that, but it will absolutely come into the conversation. And the flexibility of Powell 
seems to say that he would be admitting that and will not stand firm on that. Um, other data that looks, you know, pretty, pretty weak. I, I mean, actually, the, the deposit growth, which comes out weekly um, of uh, commercial banks, we only get the money supply on a monthly basis, definitely ticked downward. I think actually downward below the you know, uh, March lows. Now, some of that's in the money market mutual funds, which means that M2 won't be as much affected. But we've talked about the fact that M2 growth um, has definitely turned sluggish. So. As a result, you know, this this is, in my opinion, uh, a time that uh, the Fed needs to think about that uh, lowering rates. This is a political uh, election year. Uh, the pressures are growing with the unemployment rate up. Uh, he's going to, you know, he he heard even before these numbers a lot of uh, of uh, firms calling, and particularly in the real estate, real estate r- related industries, saying, "Just a minute, we're we're shut down." And uh, yes, I know the case sure ticked upward again, and all that. That's August data. That's not um, the data that is uh, with eight percent plus um, mortgage rates. So uh, yeah, we, we're seeing a, a, a reason. I'm, I'm still very bullish on on equities because I now the pressure is off on. Uh, alternatives. Um, and um, it's a question of everyone's going to ask him, would you consider lowering rates if this goes in the same direction? Again, a fall off, but not, you know, something that, you know, be, you know, is, is something that, you know, all, all of a sudden we see a recession um, on, on the on the background. The, the, the data does not point to that. It just wants to slow down. I would like to make one other thing it sort of surprised me and a little bit disappointed um, with Powell. You know, he was talking about how did we get such great uh, GDP growth, you know, to fl- slow down what do you attribute it to? And he never once mentioned a, a burst in productivity. And in fact, when we got the data on third quarter productivity earlier this week, it was the greatest one quarter increase um, outside of the pandemic fluctuations, taking that out. Uh, in, in 13 years, the biggest one quarter increase in productivity. So productivity, um, uh, you know, uh, can offset, uh, you know, uh, point for point, any drop in the payrolls um, that result. Uh, I also think this will dissuade people from quitting. It will dissuade people from thinking they don't have to do any work <laughs> and they can't be fired. I mean, the, the, this this is the capability of um, you know shifting the mindset. Now again, you know we need we'll need some confirming data, but um, um, I still think GDP this quarter uh, can. And I know that they ticked down on the Atlanta Fed, but uh, the people I follow still think it's one and a half to two. Uh, you know that uh, can continue. Yes, slow down, um, and uh, a welcome slowdown means the Fed is over. That's great commentary to kick us off here, Professor. Just one, uh, maybe one expanding point on this productivity question is that ties to outlook for next year and for earnings. And and you just sort of mentioned you think we could productivity's rebound could offset negative employment growth. You think this this uptick is real? How much? Where do you think it's coming from? This this rebound in productivity. Well, part of the it's coming from two. First of all, the the worst productivity growth in eighty years in twenty twenty two. So, you know, part of this is just uh, reversing that. In fact, I don't even think it's fully reversed. So um, uh, and and the second, you know, I think that uh, AI and uh, is is going to increase productivity uh, in the in the future. And I think people are going to work harder again, as I mentioned to you, when, when people you know, have the fear of losing jobs if they're not productive, which I don't think they had in, uh, you know, the two or three years following COVID. Um, you know, they'll they'll work harder. Uh, they may come into the office. They may work harder from home. You cannot take your job for granted anymore. You have to produce for the firms. So, uh, you know, but but a lot of it is really a bounce back from the absolutely, again, 80-year worst productivity of 2022. And uh, we haven't even erased that in 2023. And I think that that bounce back plus more um, is likely to come in 2024. 
Well, Professor, I know you have a busy weekend uh, with your family in Boston. Have a great trip there, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you very much, Jeremy. We've got Paul Graham of Bridge2 Partners uh, and Tim Coffey of Janie Montgomery Scott. We're going to be talking about the banks today. You've got actually a very good week to be talking about the banks. All these interest rate moves are having a lot of moves. Today, small caps are, are moving in a big way on these lower rates. And banks have been moving the last few days. Um, I, I sort of called out that Bill Gross was trying to catch the, the knife falling. You know, he... He making a call to go long some of the banks. We'll hear Tim's view on the banks. He covers them closely for Janney. Uh, but Paul, maybe I could start with you. You wrote a piece that caught my eye, and I reached out a few weeks ago, saying that banks need TARP 2.0. Um, for for people who may not know the acronyms of TARP, what it stands for. What is the case for banks needing some troubled asset reliefs? What what's your what's your story? Yeah. So thanks, Jeremy. Um, the, uh, the TARP 2.0 that I'm talking about is called the uh, Trapped Asset Relief Program, which was different than the original TARP, which was the Troubled Asset Relief Program. And what I proposed was that there are a significant number of banks, uh, well over 200, uh, close to 300 banks, that have a, a significant uh, uh, portfolio of uh, securities, investment securities, uh, some of them are available for sale and some of them are designated as held to maturity. And because of the uh, fast uh, and rapid rise in interest rates over the past 18 months, the value of those investments have declined significantly. So these banks are sitting on huge uh, unrealized losses in those investment portfolios. And it was um, the actions taken by Silicon Valley Bank with respect to their available for sale securities, which they sold at a loss for about uh, close to $2 billion that forced them to raise new capital. And when they came out with that announcement, they sort of spooked the market and caused the run on the bank. So, um, what, uh, what I'm proposing is that uh, the Fed or the Treasury step in and help reduce the cost of borrowing uh, at banks to provide liquidity. So um, let me back up and say that because those securities are underwater, banks don't want to sell them because they may have to raise additional equity to um to keep their uh, required levels of capital. And um, by underwater, I mean they're worth less than what they paid for them. And uh, in order to generate liquidity, um, they are going to the Fed or the federal home loan banks or to private equity firms to borrow the funds so that they don't have to liquidate those securities. And in doing so, they are borrowing at rates that are 300 basis points higher than what those securities are earning today. Yeah, this is a, a really interesting dynamic. And, and the, the question on the deposit stability, I, I talk a lot about how it's somewhat embarrassing that, you know, you could, the banks pay you so little. I mean, you could get 5% in treasuries risk-free. Banks say, you know, we're not passing along that interest. Um, but and so they get this, they earn this spread, but they also have the stuff that they made investments when deposits surged before. They had all these issues. Is, is, as you see the case on deposits, the case on lending, how this all ties together, what, what's your sense of, of why you think they need this program versus what the Fed has today? How does this TARP program, TARP 2.0, compare to what, what the Fed has made available so far? Well, um, I think what we've seen uh, as rates have increased is that um, deposits have sort of shifted uh, from uh, low-cost or no-interest-bearing deposits into uh, either interest-bearing deposits. And some banks have large retail uh, networks where they can collect deposits at, at relatively low cost. Um, 
other banks, smaller banks, banks like Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic Bank had uh, highly concentrated depositors uh, with very large balances and uh, were more volatile. And so I think what we're seeing is that um, some banks um, now, you know, they don't retain a lot of liquidity for um you know, in the bank, they invest the funds as much as they can to get a return. And um, when when they need to fund new loans or make new investments or they have deposit outflows, um, they turn to their available for sec- for sale securities or they borrow on a short term basis. Right now, what's happened is because deposits have been somewhat volatile. Um, they've seen some outflows. Um, they have to pay more for the deposits that they're retaining, um, that they are borrowing at a higher rate from the federal home loan banks and the Fed at higher interest rates. And in order to um, try to maintain their profitability, they're taking steps like exiting businesses, reducing lending, uh, reducing staff, uh, um, and and even so, they're still uh, seeing their profits uh, fall quarter over quarter and uh, year over year. So I think Tim, it's a very challenging environment for the banks right now. Tim, let me bring you into the conversation. You're based out in both are based out in California, but you know you you covered a lot of these West Coast banks and at, at Silicon Valley Bank and. And, and the others. Give us your, we'll get into your background and, and how you cover banks at January, sort of unique coverage model. I thought that very interesting setup and the way you describe your team. But are you worried about the state of the banks as Paul is here? What do you think about the the issues at the banks today? You know, I'm not that concerned. Uh, you know, what we're going through in the industry right now is adjusting to the reality of where Fed funds are. And you, you know, the, the deposits were going to reprice across the industry. It just got accelerated in March and April when Silicon Valley and First Republic, uh, you know, went down. And so what we've seen recently is, you know, the cost of deposits while still increasing, that rate of change is slowing. And with the move in rates today, I think we'll start seeing some more stabilization and funding costs. Uh, to the broader question on liquidity. That is a real challenge, and it's not something that came up this year. It's actually been going on for about, say, 15, 18 months. But we started hearing about this from our, our fixed income salespeople, you know, last year, saying that they couldn't, they, you know, the conversations they were having with uh, bank treasurers and CFOs was that, you know, they just they, they didn't didn't have the, the ability to bring on more bonds. And so this is something that's been going on in the industry for a while, and as yet, you know, we still haven't quite solved that. You know, you. Uh, it's interesting on the 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 health of the banking system and and what caused the the troubles for SVB Silicon Valley Bank was just that immediate run that people just sort of didn't have confidence and they they moved and then you know how the how we respond to that and and you know we protected the depositors but all the shareholders got wiped out. Paul, you made some structural questions on well, if if we were to do this TARP program, if you were to try to offer something that you you talked about, well, what 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 would you get in return for do that? So, talk a little bit about your your question of of what the government would get for the funding that you know the the, the liquidity that they would provide. Right. So, like like the original TARP, the the government would get warrants issued by the banks. Uh, and the size of the warrants would be equivalent to the unrealized losses in those securities. Um, so um, in order to help out the banks, uh, basically reprice their, uh, their borrowing cost to essentially net neutral against the, the returns on those uh, securities, uh, they would give warrants to the bank or to the Fed. And um, as they work through uh, and those um, uh, securities re- uh, mature or if rates go down and the values increase and 
the banks can recoup some of that liquidity. Um, hopefully, at some point in time, the, the value of the stocks of the banks come up and the, the federal government can benefit from uh, that much like they, they did in the original TARP. Remember, TARP, the original TARP didn't cost the government anything, didn't cost the taxpayers anything, and actually uh, returned, I think, something like $15 billion um, to the Treasury. Tim, when I, when I think about the sensitivity in, in Washington to the banks, uh, it, it feels like the Fed doesn't care about the pain. They sort of say, say hey, you, you, know, you, should have been, you should have heard and, and adjusted to our higher rate environment. It doesn't seem like the Fed has a lot of sensitivity to the, the, the challenge that banks are in. Although, you know, when when push comes to come, they, they did provide these loans in, in, in these additional programs where people can borrow from the Fed. Do you think, though, that BT, I guess the acronym is what, BTFP for that, uh, the, the lending programs that they have, do you think they're going to need to extend those loans, how do you think that this will evolve over? Yeah, well, I agree with you at first point. I think the Fed has shown some insensitivity towards the banking industry. Uh, you know, the reason that deposits are coming out of the banking system is because there was a massive injection of deposits uh, for COVID. Uh, you know, deposits bounces across the industry in, in uh, 2019, I think was 6%. In 2020, it was 22%. Right. So what we're seeing right now is the kind of deposits coming out of the system at the same time the Federal Reserve has you know, sent the Fed funds rate parabolic. So not a great environment for banks at all. Um, you know, so the bank term funding program is going to expire in March. Right. It's only a one year program. And that, you know, that's going to be an issue because uh, the securities that they're able to the, the banks are able to pledge to get the, the bank term funding program proceeds. Um, values of securities at par, right? So they don't have to worry about where they trade in the market, um, you know, which makes a ton of sense, right? There's no credit risk associated with these securities, at least we don't believe so, because uh, they're mostly treasuries. And so there, I think there does need to be an extension of that program or something along the lines of what Paul is suggesting, because, you know, these are, the securities are on these balance sheets because there was this influx of deposits. Right? This wasn't something that the, the banks did right before the Fed started raising rates. Right? This is something they were doing throughout 2020 and 2021 in response to all the liquidity and all the uh, uh, artificially inflated deposit balances the banks were forced to hold because of the kind of the, the COVID uh, uh, stimulus. And so, you know, there does need to be some help here uh, from, from the Fed and the, and the federal government to help the banks just get through this period. Right. Because I mean, rates, I don't know the, the Federal Reserve keeps saying they're going to keep rates higher for longer, but they're also data dependent. And if the economy continues to slow, they're not going to be higher for longer. And so this issue that the banks are facing is really a temporary issue. You know, it could last, you know, it's like it's you know, lasted you know, 15, 18 months now and it could last a little bit longer. But in the grand scheme of things, this, this shouldn't be you know, bankrupting banks. Right. Well, you know, this question on it will be an interesting question. How, where do rates settle if they do start cutting rates? You heard the professor to kick off the show actually think inflation is going to come down, slowing of the economy, they should be cutting rates. But the question will be where they, where they settle the longer term neutral rate is. But, you know, I, I think that you haven't seen any material slowdown. People worry about, uh, it's interesting in, in the financial crisis, you had all these bad things loans go bad. Now it's like treasuries. It's just that rates move so much. You don't have any credit event. This is just the safest securities getting repriced. Quite interesting. If if you were to say there's a risk, you know, I guess, Tim, to stick with you for a second, on the credit side of the ledger, I think people's most concerns have been in, in commercial real estate loans and just the work from home environment, how that's changed things. Is that, is, is that in your mind the biggest risk or is there other things? And what's the state of today versus before for this type of uh, lending that these banks do? Yeah, I think there's, there's two types of risks right now. Um, there's kind of the general risk of we don't really know how many businesses out there were tied to zero interest rates, right? If, if the interest rate is now 8% for a loan, can they do that? We're still finding that out. And I mean, we clearly know that Silicon Valley Bank couldn't do it, but what, are there other borrowers out there that are in that same position? So that's kind of the general risk. The specific risk is, is commercial real estate, right? And it's office. And for that, you really have to kind of zero in on where are the issues, because it can't be just a blanket statement. 
right? So for instance, I'm here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Office vacancy rates in San Francisco Central Business District, 30%, right? Pre-COVID, they were five, right? So that's a huge jump. Over in an adjacent county called Contra Costa County, we're largely suburban, they do have offices out there. Uh, the vacancy rate for office there is 20%, and it's up from 15%, right? So the, the rate of, of change isn't nearly as great as what we're seeing in central business districts. And that example for San Francisco, that's up and down the West Coast, whether it's Los Angeles, Portland, or Seattle. And we're seeing the same thing there. But we're just not seeing dramatic increases in, in vacancy rates in the suburban markets. And for those markets, that's largely where regional and community banks have their office exposure, right? The, the, the class A type stuff that you're gonna see start to bust or you know, the keys tossed back to the, to the lender or the servicer, that's largely in the CMBS market. And so there's this blanket fear out there about office in general, but you really have to understand where the risk is and who is in those markets. And so I think that you know, the work from home thing that's going to happen. You know, it's going to put you know, downward pressure on demand for, for office where you know, people have to commute. But the suburban markets where their homes are near probably aren't going to be as, as impacted. And as an example, you know, during COVID, uh, you know, I'm out here in a suburban market and the restaurants, you know, once everything kind of settled down, of course, outside of those things settled down, like they were very vibrant. Yeah, and, and so, you know, those businesses perform better than a restaurant, say, off of Market Street in San Francisco. You just, he, uh, Tim just touched on the CMBS market, commercial mortgage-backed securities. We had a great episode on this just recently with Dave Goodsid from Voya, who made the same exact point, Tim, on you know some of the, the commercial real estate market, actually, that it's actually factoring in so many of the getting repriced already and he actually thinks there's it's a it's actually becoming a value story in some of the commercial mortgage backed securities is was the point on on Dave Goodson from Boya. So that's a for people who want to listen back to to a past episode. I think there's some stuff there. for the the in, in one of your notes to me, you talked about the loan to value for commercial real estate before versus now. Can you can you talk about how that looks in the financial crisis versus today? Yeah, that's one of the other misunderstood things about the, the regional and community bank space right now is that the leverage on the loans that they hold in their portfolios is significantly lower than it was pre-financial crisis, right? So if we just stick with commercial real estate, in you know, uh, uh, 2003, it wasn't unusual to see a CRE loan with a loan to value between 85% and 100%. Right? Today, that little LTVs are between 55 and 65%, right? That, that, that difference is massive because if we're going to see an increase in cap rates, if you've got a loan at, at 60%, you can, you can withstand, as a borrower, can withstand you know, substantial moves in cap rates, either driven by lower NOI or just falling property values, right? You know, before you can withstand a big moves like that without having to re-margin the loan. And so... If you look across these loan portfolios for these regional community banks, by and large, they're just, they're, they're just there's better risk uh, management going on at these companies, and you see that in the loan to values. Paul, when you from you wrote the piece uh, in American Banker uh, Association, what was the reaction to the piece? What how, what have you heard from the community? What have uh, has anybody reached out to say what we should be doing more with this? Well. Um, I, I did. Um, I did have a uh, a, a spot on the exchange uh, as well, uh, and uh, talked with Aaron Klein of the Brookings Institution about it. And uh, Aaron wasn't necessarily in favor of it, um, uh, you know. But uh, I would say, first of all, that the banks themselves aren't asking for this. This was me looking at kind of what uh, the challenges were that were facing the banking industry and trying to come up with some solution because uh, ultimately, as, as Tim noted, you know, these, uh, these investments that they have uh, are going to be there for quite a while. If, as you look through individual banks' financial statements and you look at the maturities on the investment portfolios, they are heavily weighted towards 10 years or more. So the banks are going to be sitting on these investment portfolios for quite a long time. 
And unless they get some relief, um, uh, and if rates are higher for longer, um, they're essentially going to be paying money to retain those securities on their balance sheet because they don't want to take the losses um, on those securities right now. Um, So, and I think, you know, uh, the other thing I've heard about the article was like, you know, the banks made mistakes. Uh, They should uh, face the consequences from from those mistakes. Um, But I think it's important to remember that, um, you know, this this isn't like a big bank problem. This is a big bank to small bank problem. There's banks with less than a billion dollars in assets that are affected by this particular situation. And, um, you know, uh, if if the banks face consequences, if they if some of them uh, fail as a result of a liquidity crisis, um, that doesn't help the employees, or the community, the businesses in those communities. So I think, you know, um, it, while it's easy to say, um, well, you know, certain executives made a made a made a bet that rates were going to stay low, and they tried to maximize profits by uh, taking on or grabbing uh, 200 basis point um, yields on long-term treasuries um, because that was the best thing that was available to them at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, they should now face the consequences. It's just not the people that made the decisions that are going to be living with the consequences. Tim, you know, coming back to my point, I, I, I bring, you know, I, I wonder why people are as quote unquote lazy as they are to not get to try to make their cash in their checking account work harder. You know, the, you know the, there's this value to the the checking account. You got to pay your bills, um, but there's ways to manage around that. And the, and the question is, are, will, will more and more ways come to help people pay their bills off of accounts that might earn five, five and a half percent? Is, is that issue for banks? Do you, do you see eventually a more discerning consumer? I mean, one of my, uh, my well, my my views is that people will be able to do that, but they're the the mobile world. You know, now that you all have, people, we're all used to mobile banking on our phones. We can move money around much quicker than you used to. When you have to go to the, you had to go to the bank, you had to do a lot of paperwork. You could, you know, people at SVB were moving things quickly on their phone. Um, is this just a new world? Right. Uh, yeah, it is. It is. I think, you know, well, you know, for bank runs, you know, we haven't really, we haven't seen a bank run in, I don't know, since the 1920s. Uh, um, you know, I, certainly, I mean, I, the only thing I knew about bank runs was, you know, what I read in, you know, my economic, economic history books. But this one at, at Silicon Valley Bank was done over the mobile phone, right? It's a lot of people, they weren't lining up to go get their, to drain their accounts and then take the bag of money over to the bank across the street. They were doing it on their couch. And so that kind of caught people by surprise, uh, and something that you know banks now have to get have to get used to, right? They have to they can't be so concentrated in one specific customer set, right? They're going to have to diversify, uh, because the trend of using uh, the phone to do banking isn't going away. Like that, that's here for to stay, and it just so happens that you know most of the industry has invested you know significant amounts of money in developing those kind of uh, 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 technologies and, and onboarding. So that's that's here to stay. You know, the consumer is also going to get smarter about their deposit rates, right? Um, you know, I don't know what you're going to start if you're going to see, you know, wholesale accounts close and move all into treasuries or money market funds because bank accounts do have value. And I think that we've kind of taken that for granted over the last, you know, X number of years when interest rates were so low. But look, FDIC insurance, that has a value. Accessibility to funds whatever you want, practically, that has a value. Uh, having the convenience of direct deposit and bill pay through your account, that has a value. And for those reasons, I think we're probably going to see bank-wide, uh, industry-wide deposit costs be well below Fed funds. And I think you, you're already starting to see that right now, where not every bank is, is funding their assets out of their balance sheet with, you know, 5.5% funds. Right? That, that's just it's not happening now. I don't think it's going to happen because the banks do have – I wouldn't call it leverage over their depositors, but they offer so many services of convenience that they don't have to pay what a Fed funds rate might be at the time. 
We're, we're talking with Tim Coffey from yeah, Jamie yeah. Montgomery Scott, Paul Graham um, from Bridge Two Partners. Paul, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Uh, I was just going to say, um, you know, I, I think the reason why we saw so many uh, depositors uh, having money sitting in their checking accounts was during the, the low rate period during COVID, there wasn't any benefit to tying up uh, funds in, in a savings account for one or two years and basically getting four or five basis points on that money there there would the the liquidity having the liquidity um was more important than getting four or five basis points now that rates have gone up people are uh definitely paying more attention and looking for ways to make their money work harder for them I, I mean, I'm not an unconflicted person here. I mean, I have horses in this race, uh, and we have people who are, listen, we're building technology where you can pay your bills off of treasuries. So like there's functions that are coming today. I mean, using blockchain finance, the future of things, mobile banking, building wallets where you can actually pay. Bills. I mean, personally am paying my bills from a place where in not so long it'll be invested automatically from a treasuries type fund um and so there's you know there i think that technology is coming now the question is will people care enough i talked with one of my hedge fund friends who covers the banks and does all this and he's like no it's going to go slow people have inertia they don't care about the five percent and i'm like really do people not really care about getting five percent <laughs> off of and there's trillions right now this is i think it's also where it's so hard you know in in the sense of they have trillions of deposits that they can't afford to pay the five percent hmm. Right, like they have to come from a startup in in so many ways in in sort of this disruptive type innovation. Tim, so let, let make the case on value. Um, you know, these the stocks are. Um, Bill Gross made the case that you know he's catching the falling knife. It was time to buy. What what if you were to make the case to go along with Bill? Do you agree with Bill? Was he he making the right buy this week? Oh, I think he is. I think he is. So at Janney, we cover 150 uh, bank stocks uh, from the regional on down. So you know, regional community banks is really kind of our, our sweet spot. Um, and, you know, with uh, the, you know, the, the bright lights on the failures earlier this year, that entire sector has taken a hit. You know, so for instance, you know, these banks that we cover typically trade around 65% of the forward PE on the S&P 500, right? Right now, they're under 50 percent and you know there's a pricing in a lot of you know a lot, a lot of fear basically right that, that we're going to see a continuation of deposit runs on deposits at banks uh that there's a a, a looming credit cycle that's just around the corner and it's going to behave exactly the way it did in the great financial crisis uh you know honestly deposits have stabilized you know i think uh we're down four percent uh year to date for the industry which isn't you know, terrible, considering that you know if you you know the if you go back to pre-COVID uh, deposit balance levels, we're still 30% higher than that. So down 4% is not terrible. And then on the the credit aspect of it, but what happened in the Great Financial Crisis was that one specific asset class, really construction and raw land uh, for the building of single-family homes, that all depreciated very very quickly. And there's really not much value to a raw piece of land if you're not going to build on it. And so that really accelerated the losses and truncated the timeline that you would usually see a credit event play out. And so the, the difference now is that if it is commercial real estate that does start to crack, and you know we're not seeing that yet, uh, definitely there's been some, some high-profile stuff, but it's not been you know, uh, system-wide, uh, it, that's going to take time. It's going to take time, and the values of those buildings aren't going to zero. There's going to be some residual value, which gets back to that, the point I was making about how the loan-to-values are so much lower now than they were before, that you know, if there is going to be you know, losses taken by the banks, there will be, right? This is a higher interest rate environment, new for everybody. Uh, they're not going to be at the level that we saw during, during the great financial crisis. Now, all of that doesn't seem to matter at all to the equity markets, right? What really needs to happen is what we're seeing in rates, right? As rates start to come down, that starts to cure a lot of problems for the industry, whether it's the unrealized losses that Paul's been talking about on the securities portfolio 
or the ability to borrow uh, and cover that debt at a higher interest rate, or the cost of deposits starting to you know stabilize. Right, lower rates help all three of those things. And so long as rates were going up like they have this past year, you know the you know, the, the investors in the equity markets have largely stepped aside from the regional community bank space. But what we've got right now is a very cheap environment with, uh, at least for today, improving uh, rate picture. Give us like just 30 seconds also on your team. I thought when you t- described how you know, you're know you in San Francisco to cover the West Coast banks, how that differs from some of the other banking models for people have analysts, uh, how they cover the banks. T- tell us a little bit about your structure at Janney and, 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 and your coverage model for the banks. Right. Yeah. So we are a bit different than the rest of the industry in that we put people in the markets where they cover banks, right? So for instance, I'm in the West, I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area. I only cover banks in the FDIC's Western region. So think of everything from Montana down to Arizona and then out to the Pacific Ocean. I don't cover any Hawaiian banks, although I'm I'm working on it. Uh, But we've got people in the Northeast, the Midwest, the Southeast, and they cover banks in those areas. And so consequently, the difference between us and our peers is that our peers uh, cover banks by market cap. And so you'll have somebody who just covers, uh, you know, mid caps or small caps, for instance. And the benefit, I feel, of our model is that we have people, like I said, in those markets. So they are able to network in those markets, understand what's going on, uh, not just for the companies they cover, but for uh, the, the companies they compete against, as well as what's going on in the local unemployment, the local economies. And all of that stuff, especially the, the economies, are really, really important to community and regional banks and investing in them. Because they're a, they're a function of their economies and the markets that they're in, right? And that's really what bank investing is, is investing in certain MSAs that might be seeing good population growth, good housing starts. Like those, there's going to be more activity in those communities. And so the banks that are centered there should do better. And so we think having people in and around the markets of, of the companies they cover makes a lot of sense. Paul, tell, tell us a little bit more about what you're doing at Bridge2 Partners. You you do some consulting work with financial institutions. T- talk about what your day-to-day focus is. Yeah, thanks, uh, Jeremy. Um, so at Bridge2 Partners, we're a uh, boutique uh, consulting and advisory uh, firm to the financial industries, and, and we're primarily looking at ways to make uh, banks and credit unions uh, more efficient uh, more efficient in terms of, you know, uh, obtaining new clients, uh, using technology to uh, make uh, client onboarding experiences better. Um, there are still a large number of banks out there that have very manual processes. They rely on things that are paper-based or sending things through emails and things like that. So. You know, there's uh, efficiencies to be gained in a lot of institutions uh, just from uh, using technology and also, you know, leveraging the data that they have or collecting the data in better ways to make it more useful to them so they can have targeted uh, campaigns to acquire new clients or uh, lending opportunities, uh, those type of things. And, and um, is- the one thing I would add, uh, Jeremy and Tim, is that uh, I think in looking at some of the smaller to mid-sized banks, I think what you'll see oftentimes is they have, um, uh, you know, pretty efficient operations. They don't have a lot of excess folks around. So um, uh People are working very hard in a, a lot of those institutions, and um, they need to be working a little bit smarter. So that's what we're hoping to uh, bring to the, that group. Mm-hmm. T- Tim, for the, the dynamic you've had this year, you've had the big banks, um, because of some of the confidence at some of the smaller banks, you, had, you saw the big banks benefit a little bit. If you, if you were to say, where are the best opportunities today from an investor perspective focused on these do you have a, a a view on sort of small versus large banks? You saw Jamie Dimon file to sell some of his shares. I don't know if that's a sign of the 
the times for Jamie to diversify or if he's saying, hey, there's going to be some more issues? Um, what's your view on these small versus large banks? Uh, well, I think, you know, I think Jamie selling stock is just an opportunity for him. Uh, I don't think it really signals that bad days are ahead for J.P. Morgan at all uh, because, you know, they're still uh, the, the bigger keep getting bigger and that's going to continue to trend. There is an opportunity in the regional space for good commercial lenders, right? And there's, you know, the thing I think all investors should be tracking is the efficiency ratio, right? That's expenses over revenues. And really good operators keep those expenses low, right? So they can take advantage of any kind of opportunity that that comes across. And one of the things that they've been doing the past 10 years is keeping it expenses low because in a low to zero interest rate world, banks, business models like the regionals have don't really work. So they, they've been really good about expense management. Now that we're in a five and a half percent world, you know, if, if borrowers feel confident that the economy is not, you know, substantially slowing, even though it is, uh, they have to, they'll start to borrow again. And the, a lot of that revenue is going to fall to the, to the bottom line because of the, the expense management that these banks have been exercising for years now. And so I think you, you should go in the regionals. Uh, you know, markets specific is always important. You know, being in California, you know, Southern California is one in four jobs in the entire state are in that market. So, and there's been a lot of dislocation there this year. And so I think you should start looking at big markets like that. Uh, but another one, fast growing market would be something like Nashville. Right. There's been a lot of influx of population there and you know, the banks there you know, should, should do pretty well. Paul, do you have a view on this large versus small from an investor standpoint or are things that you're trying to do on the efficiency side? Sounds like you're trying to help these banks get more efficient. Any, any commentary on what you're, you're doing to help these banks get, get more efficient to that small cap space? Yeah. Um, and to Tim's point, you know, um, the efficiency ratio that you see for a lot of these small to mid-sized banks are, are low. So they are very good at operators. Um, my, uh, my concern is, you know, um, some of those banks were also very good at collecting deposits during the COVID period, and they uh, did deploy them into these longer-term investments uh, that are low yielding, and they aren't really in a position to take advantage of um, the lending them out at higher interest rates now because they are liquidity constrained. Um, as far as like looking at opportunities for those banks, uh, again, it's, it's more around, you know, how are they using technology today? How are they using the data that they have? And are they maximizing that? There's efficiencies to be gained above that. I don't think they want to bring on more people, work harder to um, to make money. They want to use the people that they have more more effectively and get more productivity out of them, as, as the professor said earlier. Tim, I come back. I was looking at one of your, your slide packs on the the bank as a whole, the banking industry as a whole, uh, with TARP 1.0, you come back to Paul's things, the, the, the government restricted dividend payments at a lot of these companies. They said, oh, we're going to give you some money. You can't pay for capital to your shareholders. But what you see, uh, you, you report about dividends. Uh, talk about the dividend activity that you've seen at banks this year. What do you think that means in terms of their outlook for, for their own cash flows? Well, yeah, I think one of the great things that the bank industry has been signaling to the market all year is that they feel good about their earnings and their capital, right? We've seen very few dividend cuts. Uh, this past week, Western Alliance, who was one of the uh, more troubled institutions, or worried about institutions, I should say, increased their cash dividends, right? So the fact that we're not seeing a drop in, in dividend uh, payment, uh, payments, I think is really a positive signal that the industry has been sending. And as a result... You know, because of the press valuations of these stocks, you're seeing some incredibly dividend yields, dividend yields right now. And you're actually starting to see some share buybacks. Uh, regulators are starting to approve them again. And I think that's also positive for the Fed bank stock market. Now, can we trust the, the regulators they, in terms of the stress tests? You know, they, they talk about there's all these questions about the San Francisco Fed. Should they have stressed the yields more? What do you think about these stress tests? Are they stressful enough? I, you know, I, I think the regulators, you know, we, we, 
they, they focus too much on what has already happened. They're not really looking out forward. Um, I think one of the biggest misses of this entire thing is that, you know, the, the, the Federal Reserve, who is, you know, a big bank regulator, wasn't checking in with banks. As soon as Jay Powell signaled higher for longer and that they were going to raise interest rates, you know, there should have been examinations looking at, at you know, these long-dated assets on the books and where they were yielding and what was going to happen if rates did go up as much as they did. And when Silicon Valley failed, it didn't sell its bond portfolio because it was afraid of the regulators. It sold its bond portfolio because it was afraid of the rating agencies. And so I'm not, I, you know, I'm hopeful that, you know, the regulators will start screening for liquidity risk, but so far they're still focused on, you know, the traditional stuff, uh, anti-money laundering and credit. Ponder, yeah, or- and if I could interject there uh, quickly, um, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, I think, um, you know, they, a lot of these investment decisions were made uh, before the rising interest rate uh, started to happen. And um, with Silicon Valley Bank, I think it was more a case of them not really understanding their depositor volatility and where their deposit growth was coming from and whether or not that was sustainable. Because as the uh, uh, venture capital uh, raise uh, slowed um, and they stopped investing uh, in, in those companies, they were pulling back. They had a large client deposit base that was burning cash at a, at a fast rate. These are high growth, uh, low, no or low profitability companies, and they were burning through their cash. And so essentially, Silicon Valley Bank had to liquidate those securities to meet their deposit outflow. And if you look at what they had put out, they weren't expecting that to change for the next three quarters, they were going to continue to see deposit outflows, and they didn't have the liquidity to meet those deposit outflows. And I think that's what ultimately spooked um, the the people that had their money there. Well, I, I appreciate this conversation, Tim. I'm going to run out of time on you on this one, but uh, I, this was a fascinating conversation. We had Tim Coffey from Jane Montgomery Scott, Paul Graham, Bridge Two Partners, State of the Banks, and a week where there's a lot of upside coming in the banks to our producer in the studio chris tooks i'm jeremy schwartz you listen to us on our behind the markets podcast have a great week everybody thanks for listening to the behind the markets podcast if you want to learn more about wisdom tree visit wisdomtree.com you can also follow me on twitter at jeremy d schwartz i'd like to thank patty hall for producing our live program on sirius xm channel 132 and our podcast producer daniel bruno join us next week for another edition of the show For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.